Hello, Slashies. Welcome to Slashed, a horror podcast where we talk about the scares, the screams, and the spooky stuff. I'm Grace. And my name is Wouter. And today we'll be talking finally about Hereditary, <laughs> uh, which is a film we were both very excited for for a very long time. So uh, we are very happy to dive into this one. But before we do, of course, as usual, Grace will grace us with one of her synopses. Take it away. <laughs> Thank you so much. Hereditary is a 2018 horror film written and directed by Ari Aster and produced by A24. The film follows miniature artist Annie Graham, brilliantly portrayed by Toni Collette, her husband Steve and her two children, 16-year-old Peter and 13-year-old Charlie. The film opens on the funeral of Annie's estranged mother, Ellen. Annie reveals that they had always had a complicated relationship due to Ellen's mental illnesses and her secretive nature. Out of everyone, Charlie seems to be the most affected by Ellen's death as she had been a significant influence on her upbringing. By Annie's demand, Peter brings Charlie along to a high school party where he quickly abandons her for his friends. While Peter sneaks off to smoke weed, Charlie eats a chocolate cake that contains nuts and ends up having a severe allergic reaction. Peter tries to drive her to the hospital as fast as he can but Charlie sticks her head out of the car along the way and gets tragically decapitated by a telephone pole. Peter goes in shock and leaves Charlie in the car for their mother to discover the body the next morning. Annie becomes increasingly unhinged after this event and antagonizes both her husband and her son. Pressured by a new friend Joan, Annie attempts a seance to contact Charlie. The seance seems successful, but Annie quickly discovers that she was tricked into performing a much more dangerous ritual. Joan was in fact part of a cult led by Annie's late mother that has dedicated itself to finding a host for the demon king Payman and subsequently summoning him. Annie pieces together that the cult has their eyes on Peter, but she's too late to stop things now. Having estranged both her husband and Peter, the family falls into the traps that the cult set for them and the film ends with King Payman successfully possessing Peter. Joan reveals that Charlie and Payman have actually always been one and the same and they needed Peter in order to give the demon the correct male body. Thank you. Sorry, I'm just trying to contain my laughter at this point. Um, (laughs) uh, It sounds so good and intense. Okay, let's just dive into it right away. It sounds so good and intense, like the whole, how you're describing the car scene and like how that sort of destroys that family and that's clearly the meat of the film. But then the cult thing comes in, it's like, where does this come from? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, do, do you just want to dive into that right, right away? Uh, yeah, yeah, let's do it. I think it's um, one of the more, more interesting things in the film, or at least um, after we finished the film, I think we both had the feeling that the cult part of the film feels weirdly underdeveloped, especially because it's all of Act 3. Yeah, yeah. So much of this story actually hinges on it, and yet it seems to come both out of nowhere and blatantly be obvious. Yeah, it's really heavy, heavy handed in one way because, um, you know, that symbol, like, okay, there's this one symbol that the, mm. it's like the first shot of the movie where the Annie and both uh, Annie and her mum are wearing a necklace with a certain symbol on it, and that turns out to be the um, ancient medieval or ancient, the medieval conjurer symbol for mm-hmm. King Paimon. I'm going to call him Paimon, and not Paimon, Paimon. Oh, is it Paimon? Well, no, it is Paimon in the film, but okay, I'll 
we'll come I'll, to I'll this. I'll back to that sec in a second, but it should be Paimon. Um, and that's just his symbol, and that is how you um, invoke that, conjure that spirit, so by writing that symbol. And that is also the symbol of the cult. Yeah. And it keeps popping up in places. I'm doing hand gestures that you can't <laughs> see. Um, like, which, for instance, it's on the telephone pole that decapitates Charlie. Yeah, which sort of indicates that they have sort of hexed her or sort of planned her for, for her to be decapitated. Mm -hmm. And in that way, once the reveal is there, it is quite blatant. Like, oh, this is mm -hmm. clearly somebody's doing, like, who's associated with this symbol. And at that point, you've only seen Annie wear it and her mum. Mm -hmm. And Annie seems kind of fine, but a little suspicious. Yeah. And her mum's clearly voodoo, so you assume, oh, okay, it's the mum somehow. Yeah, you well, know? let's not yeah. throw in voodoo. Yeah, no, okay, clearly weird. Um, so you think, okay, it's either Annie or the mum. So you then that's your assumption until stuff really hits the fan. Mm -hmm. And then Joan comes in. Uh, do you talk about Joan in the synopsis? I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Joan comes in, and so and she's clearly associated with both the symbol and the mum as well. So it's like, oh, because of the doormat. She has a doormat that Annie remarks, "Oh, my mum used to make these kind of doormats." Yeah, and uh, Joan also says to Annie, which is kind of a fun detail at the grief meeting, mm -hmm. "Hey, I recognize you from your mother." Yeah. So that's kind of fun. But then it's like, oh, okay, it's obviously Joan that is doing all the, the spooky stuff. Yeah. And then you get to the third act of the film, as you said, and suddenly there's like 10 other people. Yeah, yeah. Who, popping out of nowhere, yeah, naked. Naked in, her, in their house. And it turns out they are a whole cult of Paimon. Mm. And um, the Grand was their queen, Queen Lee, mm -hmm. which is a, sounds like a really stupid pun. Um... <laughs> And it's, uh, okay. yeah, <laughs> and where do the, the, these people come from? Yeah. It's so weird. And it is, uh, looking back at it, because of course we looked at some videos as well, they are in the film, like, it, it's people that you see at the funeral and people that waved at uh, Charlie in the beginning. Just before she died. Just before she died. But the thing is, Charlie's been out of the movie since act one. Yeah. And the whole of Act 2, the whole of the meat of the story, the emotional core of the film is about Annie losing it because she can't deal with the death of her daughter. Yeah. So that whole cult bit, it's not really there because she's focused on her loss and how the, it is tearing apart her family and how she feels like she's lost her son as well and she is potentially losing her husband. Yeah. And that cult... It, it doesn't feel present in the film. At least it doesn't feel like a threat. No. And that can be a very interesting take. Like, for instance, in Midsommar, where sometimes the cult feels like the better option. Yeah. But here it just feels like the film is, is foregrounding Annie's emotional story over the creepiness of the cult. And I commend the film for that, but it makes Act 3 a lot less solid yeah and it also makes the ending a bit weird because mm. annie ends up dying mm. um spoilers there i guess um by succumbing to the influence mm. of the cult and then she gets spooky possessed and yeah. cuts her own head off i think mm -hmm. uh very 
in the most inefficient and slow and agonizing way ever. Um, so that whole emotional release that she's supposed to have, or like mm-hmm. sort of resolve she has, should have, yeah. sort of has to make place for this weird cult plot line all yeah. of a sudden, which makes the ending, even though it is the only ending the film can have because it's about the cult in the end, mm-hmm. weird. Yeah. But they couldn't have done anything else with the way they handled this. I think um, looking at interviews as well that Ariasta did, one of the main themes that he wanted to convey in the film was the fear of being watched. Yeah. Being watched by this cult. And that's why dollhouses feature so much in the film. There's all these miniatures that um, that Annie is working on, miniatures of quite traumatic events in her life as well. And she says they are a neutral view on the events. Yeah. It's, it's this godlike view of an event where it doesn't reach us emotionally. Yeah. The way that these cult people are supposedly following them around, not caring about the emotional distress that they are putting them through, only thinking about the end goal, which is summoning Paimon. Paimon, yeah. But... I don't feel that throughout the film. That doesn't feel present. To me, the scariest thing in this film is how this family is tearing itself apart. Yeah. That is, that is, I think, just a shame. I feel like the film is trying to do two different things, whereas on the one hand, portrayed this fabulously acted, emotional story of this family falling apart, and then the fear of being watched and manipulated and influenced by a cult and it doesn't manage to blend those two as successfully as well we hoped we had anticipated going into this film no because there's a lot of um, very tense sequences in there which are mainly just the the grahams walking through the house uh sort of tiptoeing and then yeah. into the dark scary noises and that like the classic horror stuff but it's done really well because like comment ariasta he's the master of atmosphere yeah um but you have to wonder whether the scariness comes from them having a feeling that they're being watched by a cult and have a feeling that there's somebody in their house or whether the tension comes from the fact that they don't trust each other anymore. Yeah. And that they're afraid to be inside their own house because they know their family members are living there. Mm. And I feel like the film wants you to believe that they're scared of the cult. But I have, but also the film wants you to feel like they have no idea the cult is doing this. So, yeah. So it's a really weird clash. And then if that clash is happening, why not just lean more on the emotional side of the story, like you said? Mm-hmm. Because, yeah... That is way more interesting. And I think we are a bit harsh probably on Hereditary because I did think it was a really good film and I honestly can't stress enough how well I think the acting is. Yeah, and it's just immensely scary and super yeah. tense. So. It, but it, it has a bit of a disadvantage because I've watched Midsommar first and um, Midsommar, I think, is definitely... People have been calling it sort of the spiritual sequel to this and oh, asked himself actually yeah did yeah. he yeah oh, yeah, yeah. and i can completely see that because it's the refined version of doing a cult story and doing that emotional story and blending them just perfectly and that's why i think in midsummer you know of the cults from the very first from the very first moment they walk into the village yeah and it, it, they're hiding in plain sight 
which is scary in its own right. And I think I I I'd like to think that he saw maybe where Hereditary fell short and then was able to do that was able to mend that in Midsummer. Definitely, yeah, mm. because as you said, it's like it blends the two stories really well mm. by identifying that the cult should be uh, a set piece. Yeah. And not the yeah, yeah, it is the main threat, but it isn't what makes the film intense. Yeah, I think this is something that we uh, talk about a lot when watching films. It's the um, Hitchcock thing the... with the bomb underneath the table. Yes. And um, it's his idea that if you show the danger beforehand, a scene becomes much more tense. Yes. So if you see a scene, it's two people talking at a table... And the camera pans underneath underneath the table and you see this bomb and you know it's going to go off. That scene becomes incredibly tense. Whereas if you watch two people talking and suddenly they explode and you have no idea why, that is not tense. That is either gory or funny. Yeah. Um, think the first scene in Inglorious Bastards with the, the Jews hiding underneath the floorboards. That's mm-hmm. sort of the idea. Um yeah, and I feel like, yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there, that Hereditary does the latter, mm. but it really thinks it's doing the former. Yeah. And the shame is, I feel like they could have mended that so easily. Mm. Like, because they, they, they put the cult members in there sometimes. Like, there's one of the guys who appears at the end. Like, the thing is, all the, like, the, the shtick they're going for is, oh, these people you've seen throughout, the quote-unquote, throughout the film, appear at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's three that I've identified. There is the dude who is like right at the beginning at, at the funeral at the mum's funeral, who's like leering at the family, like super obviously. So that's clearly like he is clearly a threat. Then never comes up again. Mm-hmm. Then you have the lady, as you said, who waves at Charlie mm-hmm. across the street from uh, her school. Also mm-hmm. at the very beginning, never comes up again. Then you have the white-haired old guy who is standing outside Peter's window while he's smoking. Yeah. Also at the very beginning, like before Charlie dies. Uh-huh. Uh, and Joan. And Joan, yeah. yeah. And other than that, there's no hint that these people are being hmm. influenced, that somebody's been in their house, uh, that somebody is uh, sabotaging them or whatever. Uh-huh. But there's, all there is is these sudden bomb under the table changes like oh mum's mm-hmm. dead body's in the attic what gives yeah um oh mum's bedroom door is unlocked what gives yeah. you know uh oh there's this weird symbol on the wall what gives hmm. and it's just so out of nowhere sudden that it just makes you feel like um because the film wants you to feel like this it makes you feel like the mum's doing it that annie's doing yeah, it yeah yeah because there's this whole thing that she's like also has a hereditary mental illness Mm -hmm. and that she sleepwalks a lot and then the film is really trying to imply that it's all her doing it but if the film doesn't give you any other any other motive Mm -hmm. to suspect anyone else then they're kind of forcing you to believe then that annie is doing it because and that's not a red herring that is just setting it up that's that's just a setup yeah that's just the what the film is giving you and I, one of the interviews, Ernesto said, oh, it's um, no one likes it when you end the film with, and it was all a dream. Um, and that's, I think he's talking about um, how it wouldn't have been interesting if it had turned out that a lot of stuff that had happened had been 
all inside of Annie's head. Uh, so it wouldn't have been fun if you explained it like, oh, she's just going through a... She's, she's having a psychotic break and that's where everything appears so weird to her. And on the one hand, I agree because it's just been done. But on the other hand, focusing on her mental state and how things are starting to look strange and unfamiliar to her through this unthinkable grief is interesting. Definitely, yeah. And you have to wonder, is a demon cult more interesting than a person struggling with mental illness? Is Mm -hmm. it was all a dream less interesting than, oh, guess what? It is Satan, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Because that's been done, like Mm -hmm. The Conjuring, Insidious, uh, Paranormal Activity, The Exorcist. Need I go on? And he know? said, he said, I didn't want to do Satan because Satan's been done. So I did one of the other demons. But I feel like potato, potato. Yeah, I, I don't think it would have been worse if it had been Satan. I don't think it would have been better. Um, yeah, I, f- I feel like if we're just going to go into that now, I feel like Paimon is a nice choice for that, though. Cause he is, uh, if you look at the, the way that he's described in... Um, Solomon, the Lesser Key mm-hmm. of Solomon, which is the manuscripts that he that he appears in, the, the medieval manuscript he appears in. Uh, he give, he can bind people to your will. He can give you secrets of the world. He can give you riches. He can uh, give you familiars. Uh, he um, uh, can make spirits and illusions appear, that sort of stuff. So it makes sense that they chose that specific mm. demon lord for a cult because that's is this a clear payoff you know there's a clear yeah. payoff as to why this cult exists so i, I like that there is more research gone into just just having it not be yeah. satan because you do have a lot of those stories where it's just people conjuring demons that want to bring about basically the apocalypse and you have to wonder what are you trying to gain from this like why are you calling upon someone who like clearly is just set on death and destruction yeah so in that sense it is quite good that they went for this yeah it's a very nice self-contained and we um we've both studied um not extensively but we've both studied uh medieval manuscripts and particular conjuring manuscripts at university and um <laughs> yes that is the thing yeah <laughs> courtesy of the great uh, professor uh Sandro Shadonis, shout out <laughs> and uh i think it's it's good of the film that they um don't fall into the traps necessarily of how they usually portray demons as being completely evil um i mean obviously the cult is evil yes. but um when you look at the all depictions of demons is where you could have good demons and bad demons as much as you had good angels and bad angels. Yeah. Spir- With just a certain type of spirit. Yeah, spirits are just spirits, exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we're going into the whole conjuration bit now, I feel like this is such a weird thing to me because clearly the film has done its research and it, ha- and it states some very... It has a few points at which it is very particular about mm-hmm. what needs to be done to conjure, not to invoke, because the film calls it invoke, which is one of the weird mistakes it makes, like to conjure Paimon mm-hmm. um, into our material world. 
for example, it needs a male host. That is mm. the, the, a vulnerable male body. That is what yeah. the, the, the conjuring requires, which is why it needs to be, why they tried it on uh, Charlie, Charles first, which was uh, the grandma's son. son, so Annie's brother. Then they tried it on her husband, uh, name whose name I forget. So the the granddad. Yeah, I'm not sure though. At least that that's what we are inferring. Yeah. So at least the all males on this on any side of the family are mm. dead. Because oh. I'm thinking it's probably not her husband because it has to be her bloodline, hereditary. Yeah. yeah. Okay, but then that's a weird oversight of the film because they do make a point of him dying. Yeah. Anyway. Um, and the son died because. His mother tried to put people inside of him. Yeah, exactly. So he is clearly the first, one of the first vessels. Mm. And then they unhinge the family so that Peter becomes a vulnerable male host. That mm-hmm. is the whole point of the film. But that's not how a conjuration works. That is just <laughs> not how that works. Like there is a, always a sacrifice or if, like mm. not necessarily, but if you want a spirit to like you, you need to sacrifice something just as sort of an appeasement mm. gift. But... Um, the point of a spirit is that it's incorporeal um, and mm. it appears to you in a certain form you can perceive. And in it your does... fingernails or something yeah, like that. Yeah, and you need to like do super weird, like specific, like, like yeah, mm. clean your fingernails, shave your head, bathe for three mm. days. It's like super like specific and weird. But the point is that it's not that it needs a male body, but that it appears in the form of a man because mm. that is something that we humans can perceive. Yeah. And... Because I feel like it's done its extensive research, it's weird that it like takes th- these weird corners to cut, mm. like because uh, because like classic conjuration is quite silly, so it has to do something. But it just uh-huh. sort of weird that it sort of ha- takes the trouble to make it specific at some points, and then sort of oversights stuff like jargon, like calling it invocation instead of yeah. a conjuration, uh, saying payment instead of paimon because. One very important thing is pronouncing the name of spirit mm-hmm. right because a spirit doesn't like being conjured, so it will try any chance to fuck with you. And mm-hmm. if you pronounce its name slightly wrong, you might it might send down a different spirit that might want to kill you. Yeah. And just maybe we're scared that if they said the name too much on set, that they would actually conjure them. <laughs> yeah. It's like um, oh sorry, it wasn't our intention. We're just making a movie. Yeah. He's like. Can I join? Yeah, could I just hang out on set? Yeah, no, keeping that in. Um, also, don't think they ever use magic circles. No, they use a triangle. Yeah. Just no. a plain old triangle. Needs to be, no, no seals, no magic circles. It's very... And that's... I, I'm going to make a point of this because it feels very half-assed. Mm-hmm. Like, it feels like they just took the name and a very general description mm-hmm. of um, the Lesser Keys of Solomon, which you can Google and it's on, like, mm-hmm. esoteric archives and stuff. And then they just sort of ran with it. Yeah, but whereas when you look at um, Midsummer, that is filled to the brim with these well-researched folklore. Yeah. And it's kind of sad that this movie didn't have that yet. And I think doing circles and seals would have been great just aesthetically would have been great yeah I there's these cool wide shots of like the attic with like a magic circle in the middle yeah, yeah. I'm 100% willing to give them a pass with needing uh, a body to summon um, the spirit in because in the end if you're going to do a possession film I mean that's what you're going to have to do yeah I'm... so I get that but yeah I feel like they could have done more with it to make it more unique definitely yeah, um, 
to be honest, uh, what the film reminds me of, because yeah. we've been talking about Midsommar and how that is a very good um, sequel to this film. But what it also really reminded me of was one of my favorite films, The Babadook. Yeah, this is, uh, you take this away because I haven't, you've told me about this, but I still haven't seen The Babadook, which is probably going to come up in another episode, yeah, I'm sure. I'd love to talk about it, but very briefly, The Babadook is, um, kind of gives way to two different readings, which you can use simultaneously. Um, and that is on one hand, it's the story of a family that gets, um, I guess, a cursed children's book that uh, conjures this evil spirit, the Babadook, who then continues to torture them and um, just ruin their life. And on the other hand, it's a reading that the Babadook is the manifestation of the mother's grief over the loss of her uh, partner. And also the, the blame that she lays at the feet of her child, because in a way she does blame the child for how her partner isn't there anymore how his father isn't there anymore and how difficult their life is now and it's this blame that she can't really she doesn't want to accept it but she can't let go of it either and then the babadook turns into this um symbol as well of of this grief-stricken household that turns abusive and you can read those at the same time and i think that is one of the scariest subjects to make a film about yeah and I think it would have been so good if uh, if Hereditary had been just just a little bit more like the Babadook. Because the scariest thing in Hereditary, to me, is, again, the grief and the guilt and the blame. It's the grief that they all feel over Charlie. And it's the blame that Andy, on the one hand, wants to put on Peter... At the same time, no, she can't put on Peter. She can't really blame Peter. She blames herself so much. She feels so guilty for all the hurt that has come to her children. She feels so guilty for the death of Charlie. She feels so guilty for the fact that Peter feels unloved. She's scared that she's passed down these mental illnesses to her children. And that's so interesting. It's 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 a much more terrifying subject, really, than a cult yeah and uh, the shame is in like having the cult is that there's just no room for an alternative reading mm-hmm. because as soon as the cult is there that's a fact yeah and then there's, there's no ambiguity left anymore mm-hmm. that is the that is the sad thing about this film there's no room for ambiguity mm-hmm. it is so clear-cut yeah and um it that's fine but it makes it mm-hmm. a less interesting film yeah i i i do remember that when you watched it, on the one hand, I really wanted to commend the film for doing this because it didn't flip-flop. So everything you saw happened. And um, a lot of films do kind of suffer from this affliction where they will have one character see something really scary and then they will tell another character and then they will have just just missed it. And then it turns into, is this person going crazy? And you as if you already know that they are not. And that's not an interesting build-up. No, uh, no. I'm trying to think of a good example of this. Um, um, I feel mm. like Sinister does it a bit. Mm. 
Like, also, I want to commend um, Heredity mm-hmm. on doing this. Like, um, love Sinister. Touch mm-hmm. upon that in a different episode. But uh, what Sinister does, what Heredity mm-hmm. doesn't do, is Sinister does a lot of jump scares that are just for the audience to happen mm-hmm. in the background. And all the jump scares that happen in Heredity are for the characters, yeah, yeah. too. Which is, that is something, that is the sort of vibe you get. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, when Annie sees the glass move during the seance, they all see the glass move. Yeah, exactly. And when something scary happens, it's always because the character is experiencing it as scary. And not just because they played a loud noise to scare the audience. So, that's all done really well. Um, One thing that I wanted to talk about, which has to do with the cult and the theme that I think Ariasta is trying to um, play off of. And it's this idea of being not being in control over your own fate yeah the sort of uh lack of agency yeah 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 because he said in interviews um even if for instance um charlie had brought her epipen (laughs) i was one of our main questions so why does this child not always have their epipen with them yeah um then she would have died in another way like it was all unavoidable it was all inevitable that the plans that this cult made would come true. And they're related to Greek tragedies, because every time we see Peter in his class, they're talking about Greek tragedies and about how it becomes less or more tragic when a character has no influence over their own fate. Yeah, um, I've, <laughs> I like the, the sort of parallel that, <laughs> that you very cleverly identified <laughs> that the film sort of is trying to pull. <sighs> but I just got to say... I think that's stupid. <laughs> I'm going to be rude here and say that I feel that's dumb. Because I feel like it's pretty ballsy mm. to say that if the very emotional kickoff of the film does mm. not happen, the film still plays out the same. Yeah. That is a very ballsy move to make. And that makes the film infinitely more uninteresting. Because that meant that I could have watched 50 or 100 mm. different films. And the ending would have been the same. Mm-hmm. And you can see that as tragic. Like, oh, okay, the family would have always ended up like this. But that means that this scenario is just as logical as a hundred other scenarios that I can mm-hmm. imagine myself that are less logical, more stupid. Uh-huh. And still, the ending will have to make sense. So linking up with those 100 scenarios. Imagine if there's a version out there of Hereditary yeah. where Annie wakes up. And tragedy strikes. Yes. And it ends with Peter being possessed. And Annie wakes up. And tragedy strikes in a different way. And Peter ends up being possessed. Yeah. And Annie wakes up. And the film is Happy Death Day. Yeah, exactly. You could just... Or um, Annie wakes up. She is strapped to a metal chair. Uh-huh. Uh, across the room from her is Charlie. Also uh-huh. strapped to a metal chair. A TV flicks on with a doll face on it. Uh-huh. And then um, Annie has to chew through her own arm within one minute. Otherwise, Charlie gets a buzz saw to the face. Uh-huh. And then John Kramer steps out and is like, You had not, didn't have the will to survive. And it's Saw 8. <laughs> oh my god. And then the cult shows up. Ha John Kramer was with us all along. Hail Paimon. Oh, poor film. Yeah, I feel yeah. like we're riffing on the film a bit much because... Yeah. It, it, okay, it's really not a bad film. No, it really isn't. It's a really good film. It's yeah. just we had such high expectations. We had unrealistically high expectations. 
I will say, I like the Greek tragedy analogy, not for the reasons that the film wants me to know it, but when I saw Annie at the funeral, and I hadn't read any of the interviews saying oh, Greek tragedy, this or that, or we hadn't really, hadn't really focused on those things in the classes yet, and I saw her wailing, pulling at her hair, wanting to fall to the ground, that is Greek. Yeah. That is that pure greek tragedy anguish and i was just loving it yeah and i feel like if you want to write a greek tragedy that needs to be the ending of the film yeah right that would yeah almost that would have been yeah but that yeah but how the film is structured that doesn't uh-huh. work anymore but i, I agree that, yeah that if, is... it, if it's a greek tragedy it begins with annie reading her mother's book and or something like that like a prophecy and it reads to her um i've set this plan in motion with this cult and at the end of the week your two children are one of your children is going to be dead and the other is going to be possessed by a demon and then whatever annie does it merely furthers that plan and that's of course dramatic irony because then you as the audience know that whatever she's doing it's not going to help and then it ends with everything that she feared coming true nevertheless and we see her wailing and knowing that on the one hand what she did made it happen and on the other hand even if she'd done something else it would have happened anyway yeah and that's great tragedy and that is scary because how good would the film have been because mm-hmm. the shot is so cool because uh, we're talking about Charlie's funeral by the way, mm-hmm. not her mom's funeral where so the, the, the little small blue casket mm-hmm. is lowered into the dirt but then it's sort mm-hmm. of a side shot and mm-hmm. then you sort of the camera lowers with it into the dirt mm-hmm. and it's such a cool aesthetic shot and wouldn't it have been awesome if that is just the dark cold ending of the film yeah that have been just amazing yeah oh chef's kiss chef's kiss <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I can like, and I can go on how how beautifully filmed this this piece is. Like, there's a lot of beautiful cine- cinematography in there. Also playing into like the dollhouse um, vibe. Like, there's the, this shot of the where it's, um, I think it's the night after uh, Peter comes back from the accident, mm-hmm. and there's this outside shot of the house, and then instantly it's daylight. Like somebody yeah. flicks on the light switch on a dollhouse. Which I think is fantastic. There's so so much eye candy in the film. Yeah, the set is amazing. The set is really cool because the house really does almost always look like a dollhouse. And they play a lot with the perspective. Like there's this scene of Annie walking down the hallway. And um, I think it's because you can see the ceiling. The hallway looks really tall really tall and crooked yeah and she looks so tiny and it does a lot of those interesting interesting things yeah lots of shots of film from the side as well so Mm. because then you feel like it's a cross-section of a house yeah yeah which is really interesting um also like the way um sort of the props are built they look Mm. kind of weird and like they very clearly look like props to me like there's this one shot of the phone uh, yeah. Like when uh, the house gets a phone call that Peter has had a panic attack mm-hmm. at school, and the phone and just how it's composed, uh, like it's hanging on the wall, it looks so clearly fake, oh. and I feel like it's intentional because yeah, it looks yeah. like a toy phone, and I think that's 
there's so much cool stuff in there, but that it doesn't follow through with. I felt that all the walls in the house look like I could easily punch through them. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Which might have just been American architecture. <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, it, it, it looked like they were living in a dollhouse. And especially, of course, the, um, the tree house. And I do, say, I do want to say that it was a really cool shot. The ending is a shot of the tree house and it kind of zoom out and it looks like... Um, the nativity play. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, with all the cult members in white bowing down to um, King Paimon in the body of Peter. Yeah. Uh, wearing a sort of crown. The newborn king. The newborn king, yes. Yeah. Also kind of mirroring the ending of Midsummer in a way. Because yeah. it also ends on a little yellow house hmm. uh, filled with light. And a person in a crown. Oh, right, yeah. And you're not really sure whether that's a good ending. Although I'd say that this feels less ambiguous. Yeah. Although they, they did throw in that perhaps Paimon wasn't necessarily as evil and demonic as we might imagine. No. Because... They are making the point that Paimon and Charlie have always been the same spirit. And while Charlie was certainly strange, she didn't feel demonic. No. I feel like that is just sort of a weird, maybe, body dysphoria that Paimon is experiencing because he's in a female body or a female, assigned female at birth body. Um, where he requires a biological male host and that's maybe why she acts weird. Well, I mean, she acts a bit. Honestly, Out I didn't. It, I didn't yeah. think she act that she was supposed to be a weird child. I thought she was just grief stricken, and of course, the whole patient thing is very weird and a, a big red flag. But you know, she is experiencing loss for the first time, and she doesn't know how to cope with that. So I wasn't even picking up on it being. This is a very weird child all the time because we've never seen Charlie not be in grief. So I found, I suppose if you have that reveal, you want to go watch the film again and then be like, ah, this is when we could have noticed that Charlie was actually demonic and she wasn't. So then you wonder, are they trying to do this thing where it's like, well, maybe the demon wasn't as demonic as we think. And that is a very interesting subject. But maybe not one you just want to throw in at the last minute. No, definitely not. Also, mm. clarification, uh, the, mm. the pigeon thing mm. is uh, a pigeon flies into the mm. window of um, Charlie's classroom. And then after class, she goes outside, finds a dead pigeon and cuts his head off with scissors. And it foreshadows that she's going to be decapitated. And if you want to interpret it as, as that she... She, as Paimon, knew that she was going to go through this to complete the ritual. It was maybe even her sort of experiencing, okay, so this is... What it's going to feel what, like. What it's going to feel like, this is what is going to happen to me. That is actually a really cool take. I like that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> Although, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll, I think I'll give the film that much credit. I feel like... Oh, definitely. Yeah, 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 yeah defo. I think I have said all I wanted to say. Yeah, I think so too. Hereditary, as much as that might not, it may not sound like it when you hear this episode, is a good film and we enjoyed it and we would recommend it. But we would definitely recommend watching this first before you go into Midsommar. Yeah, or The Lighthouse, for that matter, if oh. you're talking A24 films. 
Um, because, fl- frankly, that's the point. We've just been spoiled when, yeah. it, when it comes to horror films. And really, Hereditary was the first, maybe, that sort of sparked the whole movement of... Well, I guess The Fitch was before that one, because yeah. that's 2015. But that really sort of sparked the movement of these sort of quote-unquote highbrow, high-concept horror films. It was certainly groundbreaking when it came out. Yeah. But also how quickly it aged, because both Midsommar and Mm -hmm. The Lighthouse came out just a year later. Mm -hmm. I suppose what I'm saying is that I'm looking forward to the spiritual sequel to Midsommar. Definitely, yeah. (laughs) Is there a... Let me Google it real quick. Is there an Ari Aster film in the works as of now? Ari Aster's... Oh yes, there is. Um, I found an article if it wants to load. Uh, oh, you gotta be kidding me. Ari Aster says mm. his next movie will be a four hour nightmare comedy. Okay, um, and that's all the time we have. Uh, Aster said he just finished the draft and added, All I know is it's gonna be four hours long. Uh, okay, we'll, we'll do, a, do a special episode, that'll be a two parter. <laughs> yeah, one for each two hours. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, on that note, we'll sort of leave it. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I've uh, been Grace. I've been Wouter. And, and you've, you've been, been slashed. slashed.